that's the way humans work. That's just the way it is, right? We like seeing shiny things. Brought to you by Island. This is the Cloud Bytes podcast, where we bring together panels of opinionated cloud customers, providers, and analysts to discuss topics related to how clouds are built, marketed, and consumed. Everyone has different needs in the cloud, so we'll debate the topic at hand, and at the very least, agree to disagree. Our goal is to provide good sound bites about how to manage your bites in the cloud. And sometimes the best conclusion may simply be that the cloud bites. This episode is all about the concerns customers have with existing technical debt when considering a migration into the cloud. My name is Brian Knutson. I'm the Director of Cloud Market Intelligence for ILAN and will be acting as our moderator for today's discussion. This episode's panel includes a global group of debt detectives. Let's start by having our panelists quickly introduce themselves with their current role and a soundbite of their initial thoughts about what is important when considering concerns about technical debt when moving into the cloud. Hi there, I'm Michelle. I work at Droplet Computing, where I'm the chief technologist there. We have a client-side and server-side technology, primarily focused on supporting legacy apps as well as modern apps. I guess when I think about cultural debt or tech debt, I often think of the cultural debt that people carry with them. The hardest thing to change is the culture within an organization, and that can be easily sucked up into the cloud. And the cloud may not necessarily be your best escape strategy to escape a dysfunctional culture. Yeah. Hey, my name's Anthony Spiteri. I'm a senior global technologist at Veeam Software, primarily doing backup solutions uh, across all sorts of platforms these days. You know, in terms of technical debt, I mean, my background is in service provider land and, you know, we see a lot of workloads being shifted from on-premises into the cloud and that proved to be challenging in many ways. So, you know, looking to talk a little bit about that and how I managed to get customers to overcome those challenges and now moving forward as customers, you know, even shift further into the public clouds and into sort of more cloud native scenarios that poses new challenges. So let's uh, have a chat about that. I'm Chris Holderbrandt. I'm a technical architect for a large medical devices company. I typically deal with technical debt on a day-to-day basis, working through trying to resolve it, fix it, find ways to mitigate it, and kind of excited to see where it brings us in the cloud world. Thank you all for joining me. Technical debt can mean a lot of different things in our industry. For the purposes of this conversation, we'll refer to technical debt as all those things an IT department knows needs to be done, but may not have the time available to properly address them. This leads to a myriad of different potential landmines within the environments. It could be an unpatched system, a temporary PowerShell script written quickly to execute a daily data transfer instead of truly integrating two systems, or it could be the documentation of the interactions within a complex system. When considering a move to the cloud, these items should be considered because the move alone could set off that landmine, or it could completely diffuse it and make it irrelevant. But without the proper attention, the team doesn't know which will happen if they even know the landmine is there. So Chris, let's start with you since you know you have day-to-day interactions with this. Can you start by giving us a few examples of what dangers exist if customers simply lift and shift existing technical debt into the cloud? First off, you know, you're bringing what you have currently into the cloud. So if you have a problem or a server, for instance, that you have to patch on a weekly basis and it hangs every time you patch it, now you're just moving that problem to the cloud and dragging it along with you. 
This is the same type of thing or decisions that were brought forth in the early days when we were doing P2V. You would look out, make the decision of whether you were just going to P2V it or you were going to rebuild it. Most people took the easy button and just moved it. And then a few months later, they realized what they brought across. Also, the same thing applies when you're working with code. As you have systems that are built to run SQL queries that are written inefficiently, they typically, instead of fixing the code, you just buy bigger boxes, add more memory, add more CPU, and just let it run. Where you do that in the cloud and it becomes extremely costly. Yeah, that's the crux of it is, you know, you got to be careful that what you're pulling over isn't just going to cause more problems. I think is the way I look at it a lot is, you know, don't take something that's a small problem now because it could grow in the cloud and, and actually become more of an issue because of costs and other things that you didn't have to deal with before. Yeah, I think it's done that. I mean, I, I can think of a very vivid example. Back when I started at the service provider that I was at before Veeam, we were doing VDI with vCloud Director at the time. And um, it was a big push. We, we'd done all the hard work to automate, you know, the setup of the initial Horizon stack at the time when Horizon just came out from VMware. And we were pushing it quite heavily through our resellers, right? And we it was getting some hits because everyone at that time, or well, not everyone, but a lot of people were looking to take advantage of, you know, moving desktops into the cloud. The, the promise of the technology was there. But what we saw was when they lifted and shifted that, you know, from their offices into a cloud-based scenario using Horizon, using whatever they were using to access those desktops, I mean, the complaints started to rock through about things were slow, it wasn't performing up to scratch, it would work better on my desktop. And then all of a sudden, you know, the companies had their uh, productivity broken. So that was a really pertinent example, I think, of the reality of a direction in terms of, you know, the reality of what it was. So the technical debt there is obviously more about the reality that the customers were trying to expect the same or better experience because it moved to the cloud when the reality of that was a lot different, right? So there wasn't any refactoring of their software to make it work on the new platform. There wasn't any consideration as to the scoping of the desktops at the time. So I saw that as a really real example leading on to what Chris just talked about. I think also we have to ask ourselves the question, why do people lift and shift and why is that an attractive proposition to them? We have a technology where people can lift and shift, but they can also install afresh and bring their data to that environment. But they almost never opt <laughs> to do the latter. They always opt for lift and shift. And I think there's a couple of factors that drives that. First of all, they don't understand the application. They're often that application is highly complex and the knowledge of that application exists in tribal knowledge which is great if the tribe is still working at that business. But if you've lost members of your tribe, you've also lost the knowledge of that application. So people are actually a bit frightened that they wouldn't actually be able to reproduce that application in the cloud if they were doing it from scratch. And the other driving factor for lift and shift is it is simply too expensive to refactor some of these applications, hmm. especially if the business looking at the cost of doing that can see absolutely no profit margin or benefit to the business and spending all that money to refactor to then have an application that does exactly the same thing. So there's always that business pressure to lift and shift something because it's the cheaper option than starting again from scratch. And all of us have been in projects where a new version of the application is meant to replace the legacy one. 
And that new application is a way of building that application more efficiently, but also tailored for the environment it runs in. How many times have we seen those projects be a year, two years, three years late? Mm. And even when they reach fruition, the end users go, we hate this, we prefer the older version. <laughs> so, you know, there's a lot of risk in trying to avoid lift and shift as well as benefits to lift and shift. But I guess it's that old adage, garbage in equals garbage out. Yeah. If you take a rotation and you move that into a different platform, the problem is, is you still have a rubbish application <laughs> and nothing about ones and zeros have really changed. And the last thing I wanted to say about lift and shift is there is this aspect of troublesome apps where the businesses goes, you know what, I just want this out of my hair. Just take it, put it somewhere far away from when I have to look at it. I know the greatest distance away is the cloud. Let's put it in the cloud and it's far away from me. And we can just stick it in there and not think about it. And we can focus on what does add value to the business. Only to discover that simply putting it in the cloud has just shifted where the ones and zeros are being processed. They haven't really attacked the source of the problem. That's a really interesting look at it, actually. I hadn't even thought about that from the point of view of just putting it out there without any great consideration, apart from just you know making it try and disappear. I think as well, one of the things that we saw was that when organizations move into the cloud, they don't understand that there is an element of shared resources. All of a sudden, you're on a multi-tenant platform, noisy neighbors. And that obviously depends on the type of cloud, but more often than not, if you've got a contended resource on a cloud platform, that's going to cause some issues. So I think that doesn't get considered very often. I mean, today there's probably more awareness of it. And, you know, Brian, I think you guys would probably be aware of that as well. There's a lot more awareness, but the reality of it is that you only really know what's going to happen when you put it in there, right? When, when it's used in anger after the shift. And I think I've seen, well, certainly in my last few years when I was working in the cloud space, I saw a lot of businesses pull back out of, say, the public clouds. They've gone all in on Azure or, or um, AWS. And then they're like, you know what? This isn't working. It's either costing us too much. The performance isn't up to scratch. So we've got to pull it back. So I saw a lot of inverse migrations back to either on-premises or to a, you know, a hosting platform. I've seen some of that too. I think sometimes customers forget to make that calculation about ingress and egress charges on the network. The network resources that we use on our own on-prem environments, so that's a contentious thing to say, but the network resources that you could see in ingress and egress out of the cloud, not always for free, and very often there are charges to do that. As for businesses leaving the cloud, what I saw about three or four years ago was a lot of Silicon Valley style startups who would throw up a SaaS based solution, have that scaled across a number of regions in the US so they could offer availability. But as they grew, they began to realize this is actually quite expensive to do this. So the reason they were attracted to public cloud for their startup was next to nil CapEx costs. They wanted to spend any cap any money they had not on CapEx, but on promoting the business and development. But as the business became successful, the bills started to grow and they began to realize we could do this far more efficiently from a cost perspective using our own infrastructure. What I think is interesting in that from the customer's perspective is, well, where's all my resiliency and multi-region gone now if it's being taken in-house? Am I being offered the same quality of service as a SaaS application? Now it isn't in Amazon or isn't in Azure or isn't in Google Cloud Platform. And so just to say one more thing around that as well, 
Those lift and shifts typically are targeted with traditional applications. Uh, maybe taking an exchange server and shifting it to a cloud platform doesn't really you know, give you more availability. It doesn't really give you more resilience if you're just shifting the whole application. So I think that happens a lot where, you know, the technical debt is actually in the application that they're using. I mean, I remember still doing migrations even maybe it must have been six or seven years ago from Lotus Notes to Exchange Server, right? People were still using that even in the 2010s. So when organizations go by the mantra, if it's not broke, it doesn't need fixing, then I think you're going to see a lot of this moving forward. And even today, as modern applications move into containerization and serverless and that sort of stuff, it's only going to get worse. And I think what we're going to see from a technical debt perspective, it's actually going to get worse and it's going to grow and it's going to get more impactful as we move along into these newer modern platforms. I think you hit a good subject there. You know, As you're doing lift and shifts, you're actually just moving data centers you're actually not taking on any of the benefits of the cloud of having multi-geo or HA in any way, shape, or form. You're just moving it like you would physically to another data center, just getting it out of your own world, just getting it out of your site is like Michelle was calling out. So you're not seeing any of the benefit of going to the cloud and just adding more cost for no benefit. One thing I would add to that, though, is occasionally I do hear people in C-class parts of the business go, we want to get out of the business of data centers. Yes. So moving a data center and moving to the cloud, there can be some benefits of that, but only if you get rid of your data centers or choose not to bite down on a expansion plan or a renewal of a data center. But well, I think that comes from a particular business philosophy, which is whatever my business does, whether it's medical or whether it's manufacturing, I'm not in the business of data centers. I just happen to have one because I need computers yeah. to run my business. Yeah. But my business is medical, not data centers. And I want to get out of the business of being a supplier of data center resources. The reality is, as well, any business or organization that's, say, less than, say, three to five years old has a massive advantage today in terms of, you know, what their applications are run on, what they know to be an IT infrastructure because they're consuming SaaS-based applications, Salesforce, they're consuming, you know, teams for chat and collaboration. They might be using Snowflake for their data warehousing. They don't know servers and data centers. So I think a lot of the technical debt that we see, and again, it goes back to the previous point, is historically going to be carried over by the companies that are five plus years old because they just were not born in this new era that makes it a lot easier to move a workload from A to B to C. Networking, all that kind of stuff. It's so much simpler today. So, yeah, so it just depends on where you are in your life cycle, I think, as a business. That reminds me of a kind of old Irish joke, which is you ask somebody for directions to get to somewhere and the answer is, well, I wouldn't start from here. <laughs> um, but the reality is you are here and therefore you've got to find your route. I wonder whether the pandemic will have an impact in that in the same way it's had a massive impact on retail. The businesses that were purely bricks have really suffered and were suffering anyway. The businesses that managed to have a hybrid model of bricks and clicks have done okay, but it's really accelerated the closure of their bricks and mortar locations and the businesses that have done the best are the ones that are purely online only and didn't have any bricks at all but as you just correctly said it's not as if you can back out of those infrastructures physical infrastructures 
that quickly that you can be able to pivot that quickly for your workloads from one place to another. But telling an organization that's 150 years old or something like that, uh, you need to embrace an Amazon model for what you do. I mean, as Amazon, as an Amazon retail, that's a cultural change as well as a technology change. We all know it's cultural changes that are the hard ones to affect. Technical changes are neither here nor there, and they're hard enough as they are already. Changing the mindset of people, that's quite another. There are really good examples of that as well. Like I've actually just listened to a podcast. It's the Acquired FM podcast. It's a really good podcast, actually. Really highly recommend it. But they went through the Wall Street Journal and their modernization and their change over the past, you know, I think it's, it's about 170 years old. And what they've done more recently to basically transition from an effective bricks and mortar company, you know, selling newspapers, having physical subscribers to one that is fully digital and has tremendous digital assets. They've flipped it around, right? That said, that's something like the Wall Street Journal, which has tons of resource, tons of, I guess, momentum to be able to do that. Can normal businesses do that? I don't know. That, that's going to be the challenge, right? We've definitely at Island seen some of that effect. So we have customers that have both before the pandemic and since the pandemic have kind of had that pivot of we need to be more digitally focused and call it digital transformation or whatever buzzword you want to use there. But they've realized that their way of doing business, the way of going to market needed to be more direct, more online, more digital. We've also seen a lot of customers moving to the cloud due to the fact that getting to their data center is now more difficult. Oh, yes. They are starting to realize how much of a waste of time, how much of a pain it can be. Okay, I'm going to drive out to the data center. I'll be back in three hours. I've lived that life when we had our data center. The other side of town, you know, it was a 45 minute drive to get there. And we'd always time it around either going there in the morning and then going to the office or go to the office and then spend the rest of the afternoon and then go home after that so that we didn't have to waste time going all the way back to the office in a lot of ways. And we've seen that with customers that, and this is something we touched on that I want to dig in a little bit deeper is that, you know, sometimes there's that technical debt. The customers say, you know what, we need to deal with this technical debt. And it's going to be a massive change. Let's just go ahead and bite off and move to the cloud as part of this. Or, hey, this problem that we're having can be solved by the cloud. We can take advantage of the global nature of the cloud or the high connectivity of the cloud or the high bandwidth we can get there in the cloud and make that move. So, Michelle, I'd like you to kind of dig into that a little bit more and, and talk about what ways cloud can help address technical debt in a customer's environment. Yeah, I think there's a number of ways in which it can address. I mean, in some of the businesses that I deal with, in certain market verticals, there's really been a massive lack of investment in their IT infrastructures. And that is displayed by the fact that they've got legacy applications, which are really with the arc. One of the more revealing things about working at Droplet Computing is when you get a customer in a padded room where nobody can hear what is being said, what they actually fess up to and admit that they've got inside their businesses. And sometimes, Half the challenge is, is just getting them to be willing to actually fess up and do that. I guess one of the benefits is what was said already, biting the bullet and deciding to go to a brand new infrastructure and leaving that behind. Although we have talked about the risks in doing that in terms of lift, leaving legacy applications behind and the risk of building something new, which then doesn't work. I think if anybody wants to leverage the benefits of the cloud in order to sort of circumvent that lack of investment. They shouldn't think as much about the technology, but they should think about the culture. And what 
This is something I've seen for a long time, which is this a thing I call RTC, resistance to change. And part of the reason that we have a technical debt in the first place is it gets created by a series of dirty compromises that uh, people undertake in order to be slippery inside an organization and get through or around certain silos that could be a roadblock to a deployment. So these design compromises are made in an effort to get the deployment to work because you've got people with vested interests blocking, so you have to go around them. But those design compromises, which can be defended like in a VCDX kind of style way, this is the design compromise and how it worked for us, that will eventually bite you when it comes to wanting to do a move like this. So my main thing is, I would say, is look at the culture of the organization identify people who are willing to adopt change and go around the people who aren't willing to adopt change because there will be people out there in your organization who want things to be just the way they've always been. And I find this a really weird thing that we have in IT, considering that we work in a field which is constantly changing to the degree that nowadays we can't keep up because it's changing at the speed of cloud. You have people who basically want things to be the way they were five or ten years ago. Some of that is kind of hugging, and some of it is job protection. Some of it is just a kind of mentality of, I know where I am, and I don't want it to change. If I stay where I am for the next five or ten years, I can just retire, and then I don't have to think about it anymore. I'm very keen on the cultural side of this, rather than getting hung up on the technical side of things. The technical debt comes from those cultural decisions, I think. Yeah. Hey, Michelle, you're right there. I think you articulated it well. And what it comes down to is there's a certain risk involved with something going wrong. And in IT, more than any other career, it can ruin you as an IT practitioner. If you're on the uh, tools when something goes wrong, we've all had that situation where we hit the wrong button, we press the wrong switch and the server goes off or we restart something or we, we delete something and we all know that feeling that we get in our stomach, right? That very quick, oh no feeling and it's like, maybe I didn't do that and it's like the realisation that you have or you haven't but and I think that's why there's a lot of resistance to change in this industry and it's why it's very hard. I mean, from a vendor point of view, it's very hard to unseat an incumbent as well and that can be kind of translated through to, you know, the incumbency of being on-premises on moving to the cloud and then moving a step further into the modern platforms. And, yeah, there's some really, really interesting cultural psyche situations going on there. And you're right, for an industry that is so innovative, on the edge, wants the latest and greatest, we're kind of a bit frightened of it at the end of the day, aren't we? And let's think about that for just two seconds. If these dirty compromises that people engage with in on-premises environments are taken, in order to get round cultural restrictions, guess what you think the risk is when you go to cloud? That the very same dirty compromises end up in a public cloud environment because that's what we need to do to get this over the line, guys. Yeah, or new versions of them that are specific to the implementation of the cloud. I mean, a lot of what we're just talking about has been in the industry. I, I started my IT career in 1993, and it's like I'm still having the same discussions I had. Yep. 27 years ago, you know, yep. nothing's changed except the workloads and the ones and zeros are processed somewhere else. And that's because I think you're often up against a thing that we often neglect in our industry, which is the human element. 
And that's what I want to stress when we're talking about this. Yeah, it's one of the things that's hard to overcome. There will always be technical debt. Yeah, and I mean, a great example of that is how many times in our career have we put in a workaround or a temporary fix and said, so this is just a workaround to get us over the line. And I used to say to people, any temporary fix or workaround, once it's there, will become your operations. Yep. That is how it will work. Because <laughs> you've accepted that as an acceptable process. It will then become part of your culture, become that, that's just the way it is. And then somebody new will come into your organization who was never present when that was happening and go, I can't believe we're doing it this way. How can we be doing it this way? And then people go, well, you see what happened. And then the shaggy dog story comes out that explains where all these dirty compromises were made around the initial design. Yep. Seen that firsthand. Mm. There's a lot of that going on. And I think we all definitely agree on that, that there's a ton of those issues that exist in the environment. And those of us that have been on the customer side have, have lived it firsthand. Those of us that have helped customers migrate from thing A to thing B, whether that be on-premises cloud, physical to virtual, application one to application two, have seen that and had to watch customers struggle with it. But I'm really curious, Anthony, you travel the globe, talk to tons of different customers. I'm really interested to hear your experiences and if you actually do see a big trend of customers hesitating to go to the cloud just because of technical debt or, or how they're actually really thinking about that. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I wish I was traveling uh, more, <laughs> more, more, yeah, but yeah, let me try to remember back that far. No, but I actually kind of think it's the other way around. If I think about it, I think there's more of a push to say we have to be in the cloud. So get us there somehow. So I think... When you look at it that way, that kind of causes problems in itself, right? But I don't think there's too much of a... Because the direction usually comes from a CXX, like a CIO or a CEO that's seen all the marketing, believe the hype, has been taken out to a dinner, given a gold watch, whatever, right? And then they finally say to their IT organization, hey, you guys, we're moving to the cloud. That's what we see a lot. And I think, you know, that's kind of what I was talking about initially with, you know, that initial push to the cloud thinking it was the panacea. And then slowly but surely, the realization not everything had to go there. And I think that's kind of what I've seen over the past sort of 18 months is that it's more about a categorization of workloads, categorization of the type of workload. That then obviously includes an element of the debt that's involved in that workload. Is it a .NET application? Is it some other type of app? Can we move it to a SaaS-based application? If you start to categorize those workloads, customers can then make it real easy to go, okay, workloads in category one, we'll keep them on premises. Workloads in category two, we can shift them to a public cloud. And you know, category three, we can probably convert them to a SaaS based application. So I think that's a lot of the reality of what's actually happening now. More of an understanding that you don't have to go all in into one particular cloud, one particular lift and shift. You can start to get smart about what you're doing. So if that trend continues, I think all the things that we've talked about with regards to the dangers of the technical debt of the older software, of the older applications, of the platforms will start to go away a little bit because just through attrition, the workloads will start to separate themselves into where they need to be. Can I express some skepticism? <laughs> of course. It depends on what mood I'm in. So I can be a very glass half empty and then glass half full person and it. I tend to pivot. If somebody's being glass half empty, I'll be glass half full. And if somebody's being glass half full, I'll be glass half empty. I'm, I'm, being, I'm being positive today. So uh, <laughs> you, you, my, my you wife take, hates it that I play both of those two. Yeah. 
natural contrarian in me that on these things that makes me want to express a different view. Let's say you do do that demarcation and you silo various apps into their various platforms that you think are the right fit. There's obviously a natural complexity that comes from that. And also a problem if you then decide I do actually need to move it. Is it somehow bonded to the environment that it's in? Is it difficult to move it out? That's by the by. But I think you have to remember is, you know, I was talking about dirty compromises. Some of that was cultural. The dirty compromises can be technical and they can be within that silo. How many times in our career has the customer wanted A, B and C? And we've had to say to the customer, I can give you A and B, but not C. I can give you A and C, but not B. I can give you B and C, but not A. And there are sometimes situations where a customer wants three things and you have to say to them, great, pick the two that are really important to you. And so there are technical compromises, which will then, to some degree, if you're not careful, undermine the overall project if you're not careful, but they're non-negotiable. I'll give you a direct example of that. We had a particular customer who was being sold to them, a particular instance type in the cloud. They were getting a very good deal on that particular instance type. And so all the TCO studies said, go for this one because, you know, you'll get a lot of bang for your buck. But that instance type did come with some limitations around it, which the customer was well aware of. But the TCO decision trumped the technical decision. And so I think we have to be realistic about trying to put things into different buckets and say, well, that's going to go into that bucket and that's going to go into that bucket inside that bucket. There will be technical debt. There'll be compromises that have to be made because we can't deliver the panacea. In fact, I think we're actually agreeing with each other. Yeah, I, I think so. What you made about the panacea, our industry is just littered. Uh, deck after decade, there is a new panacea that's going to fix all your problems. And you should always be wary of that person who stares not into your eyes, but just above your eyes, as if they're a person possessed. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not like, yeah. well, look into that person's eyes, because if you look into their eyes, they've got you now, you know? So yeah. uh, snake all the people who sell panaceas. And I think we probably collectively as a group, the reason we've done well is we sell a positive story, but we don't then try and pretend that there are no downsides because there always is a downside, isn't there? 100%. And I've found that it's key to make sure to document because you are always making some compromise at some level. And if it involves technical debt in the end, it's important to document that. And, and we've kind of touched on why, because someday you're not going to be managing that. Your tribe won't be managing that. And someone else is going to have to have that knowledge. Yeah. And sadly, there is a CYA involved in that. Absolutely. Which is get this in email so when somebody says why on earth did we do it this way and it's like well we had this discussion do you not remember it from a year ago oh no i have no memory of this discussion well here's the email that proves so there is a element of cover your own buttonness where compromise are being made and you're saying to the customer are you sure you want to make that compromise and they go yes we do they often and this is no disrespect for customers have selective amnesia some six months later <laughs> when for sure. you know when somehow they've forgotten those discussions la 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 that never happened you know i blame email retention i think you know the big things that as a customer looking at this you know, things were pointed out earlier is you know a lot of these decisions are made from the high up with little to no regard for what is lying below what is actually running in the trenches what's running in the servers what legacy applications can you can and can't move if they can move, what's the 
cost that it actually is going to take to move said application. A lot of these things aren't considered as part of the migration process and is left to us as the IT workers to migrate in turn, adding more technical debt into things because a lot of times this is wrapped up in short timelines, low budgets, and you know we always have to cut corners somewhere to make up that time. I've seen that a lot in customers who spend one, two years discussing what they should do. So there's this huge amount of prevarication. And then once they have decided what they're going to do, they want it next week Yeah, on a shoestring. And it's like, you could have spent a lot of your time and money making that decision a lot more rapidly. And that would have left more time and resources for the actual delivery, which is the thing that's going to really determine whether this thing's going to be a success or not. I mean, I've seen business units that go, hey, I'm going to be completely cloud by 2022. And now it's 2021 and they haven't even started architecture discussions. You know, and that's a really hard thing that you're you're setting yourself a timeline, knowing that you're going to make a whole bunch of compromises to make this work or just go the whole lift and shift model. I think it's also one thing that we've not touched on about is the security implications of some of these decisions as well. People get so wrapped up in the planning of how will it work once it's being moved to the cloud that they spend insufficient time thinking about the security risk and how secure it will be once it's there, especially if it's a legacy system. In my discussions, when we are looking about the server product, I could say on a handful of people want to actually lift and shift a legacy application into the cloud. They nearly are always looking for a way of it persisting inside their data center, but a lot more secure than it was when it was just sat there plainly sat on the wire and anybody could connect to it. And there's an implicit sense of risk associated with taking a legacy system and lifting and shifting that and putting in the cloud. Now, if a customer wants to do that, we will talk about what can be done in terms of security. A lot of that is tooling. In other words, it's in the config and not in the product. And how many times have we been caught out by people being told you need to do X, Y, and Z for this to be considered secure. And then you go in to do an audit and, it, and the config simply hasn't been done. So a vendor such as ourselves provides all these features that the customer can use to configure security, but somehow that's lost in the desperate race to just actually stand it up and get it running. And once it is standard up and running, people are like, oh, it's running now. Okay, move on to this other project. And it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> what about an audit on the implementation to make sure that the appropriate tooling has been done to make sure it is secure after the fact. Yeah. And we'll have a whole conversation just on the security implications of moving to the cloud and where people are concerned. And of course, we had two episodes on the previous season of Cloud Bytes. So it's definitely a top of mind concern that people want to talk about. So that was a great conversation. You know, I think some of the key takeaways there really is to know that you're going to bring whatever you have, and that's going to be good or bad. And if you lift and shift, that stuff's going to end up in the cloud. Uh, it's key to understand what you have today, what the cost of refactoring might be, and then making sure you pick the right solution for each application. You, know, you don't have to move your entire on-premises infrastructure into an IaaS cloud. You may need to move some stuff to a SaaS model. You know, I'm done managing Exchange. I don't want to just move it into a virtual machine in the cloud. I'm going to move it to 365 or Google Mail or whatever it might be. And, you know, some things may need to stay on-premises. You know, those things that may have a lot of technical debt that may have really 
tight integrations that's going to take a long time to unfurl that you may need to keep on premises and, and that's okay you know you got to do what's right for each application so that you get the best benefit out of all of it and you know we are seeing customers that see cloud as a solution to their technical debt problems whether it be solving an existing problem replacing an old application that you just can't get upgraded as we record this we just recently seen big holes in exchange get taken advantage of and we definitely have seen an uptick in people interested in our 365 cloud backup product because they are now looking at moving away from exchange and saying i don't want to deal with this anymore let microsoft handle this because they can patch that way faster than they can give us a patch for our on-premises exchange so the key really is as you look at your existing infrastructure understand and i love this phrase the dirty compromises that were made and you need to look for those and understand where those are so that hopefully you can excise them from your environment as you make the migration, but also be aware of what compromises were made before and the consequences of those so that you don't do the same thing as you move into the cloud. And if you do make compromises, which you will, make sure you document those so that they're understood, everybody comes to an agreement and it's documented and there's no question as to why that happened. So great conversation. Thanks to Chris, Michelle, and Anthony for that conversation. Also, thanks to iLand for making this podcast possible. Please check out the episode notes, panelist contact information, further information on this topic, and all the other episodes at cloudbytes.cloud. You can also find our episodes on your favorite podcast apps. If you found this content useful, we'd appreciate you sharing with your friends and colleagues and rating us on your favorite podcast platforms. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the CloudBytes podcast. The good old days of about five years ago.